1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft.
3: Horror,
2: fantasy, crime, LGBT,
0: you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health to find out if it's right for you.
1: Hold up. What was that?
2: Yahoo Finance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com now entered
3: the House of Mystery with your hosts Eric Shapiro David North Martino John Copenhager
2: and Al Warren six point five Los Angeles. 102.3 FM
0: Riverside. AM Palm
4: Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr Joe Goldberg. I'm in the house. What are I you doing P.u. in the house? Yeah. I am
2: talking. I'm doing the radio show. I'm looking forward to this. I'm gonna learn some more stuff today. About time. I always take, that's true, I always take my notes, you know that. Yeah, because you've got to start learning,
4: you know. It's called plagiarism. (laughs) Uh, I'm not touching that. We've got uh, a mystery, thriller, suspense writer, and uh, let's, let's talk about her new book. So it's called Bright and Deadly Things, and let's welcome Lexi Elliott. So thank you for being on the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
4: I was looking at your history, and it says that you started writing after losing your, your bank job. Is this correct? So, like, that's when you started kind of looking at writing as a career?
3: Yeah. I, I'd always written. I wanted to write from as soon as I understood that, you know, books had authors. Even when I was really young, I would take um into my primary school teacher some little stories that I'd written. So it'd always been a dream of mine, um, and I'd had a little bit of success in short story competitions, but then in 2008 I lost my job in the global financial crisis, like so many people who were working in the financial industry did, and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe that was the time to give novel writing a crack. And it took me a really long time because I had two young children at home, and uh, I also then got another job in the in the finance world. So, it took me a really long time to to get a novel finished. Um, but ultimately, that became my debut novel, the uh, the French Girl.
4: Is there, is there something that um, gave you the let's say the confidence to decide to actually publish a book like the French Girl?
3: I think that uh, what I had all of a sudden was time um, and. I, I'd been running really, really hard, uh, a very kind of long hours, twenty four seven job in the city, and suddenly I had time because I kept my nanny on because I was hoping to get another job. So um, I was able to to spend a little bit of time each day actually thinking, okay, let's sit down, let's write. And once I, I suppose I'd really gotten into the project. Um, then even when i got a job ultimately i i kept it going on the side and and eventually got there but the thing that really gave me the confidence was getting an agent because i think at that point you know agents are like gatekeepers for for the publishing houses so you know once once you get one you feel like like you're one step closer to actually getting a publishing contract um and my agent, particularly, it, she's been an editor in her time, and so she was able to help me a lot on, um, you know, cleaning up the manuscript to make sure that it presented in the best possible way.
4: So did, did you have confidence, even though you had all that writing time? Uh, you know, it sounds like you've been writing since you're, you can remember, but did you did you feel with the French girl you had enough confidence in it? Uh,
3: look, I think I've always had a certain level of self belief that if i just stuck at it hard enough that eventually i'd get there maybe not with that project maybe it'd be another book or another book after that but if i just kept going long enough and you know threw enough mud at the wall eventually something would stick and i don't know whether that's um confidence or kind of blind naivety but i i certainly felt that i i should stick at it and that it was something that eventually would would come good for me um yeah, I can't really explain where that came from, but, uh, but, but it's how I felt.
2: Did any of that come from your background, which we, you know, which is, of course, you've never done anything in your life. You're just an Oxford PhD in uh, <laughs> theoretical physics. By the way, my brother's an MIT grad in theoret- theoretical physics too, so we can talk about that. But, so that's a scientific background. You're uh, a, a long distance swimmer. You've all, you're, you're an athlete. All those things take um, uh, spell, a skill. They take dedication they take all those things you transport that to writing right so how did and how did you train to be a writer
3: yeah I think people always say that you train to be a writer by by reading and I think that's true to an extent and I certainly read an enormous amount as a child as a teenager and so forth I actually feel at this point in my life I'm reading the least I've ever read because it's very difficult to do alongside writing I Tend to pick up the voice of whatever I'm reading and then have to have to completely rewrite my chapters the next day when they just don't work anymore. Um, but you know, the disciplines are a really good point. Um, the, the sports that I've tended to do better and have been things that have required, um, a lot of discipline, a lot of time. I suppose you could say that the sort of 10,000 hours concept, if you put 10,000 hours into anything, you will become, you know, fairly expert at it. Um, and maybe, maybe that's true too, but I certainly wasn't afraid of, um, putting in a lot of time into the writing. And, you know, um, it, I wasn't afraid of it taking a long time before anything came to, to fruition. Um, so yeah, I suppose there's a, there's a certain overlap in that. And I also think the other thing, um, where there's an overlap is, um, with the, the PhD experience where when you're doing a PhD, Nobody has the answers anymore. It's not like you can just go to some professor in your university and say, "I'm a bit stuck here. Can you help me on this one?" Because you know you're doing something new. That's the very nature of doing a PhD, and so you have to find a way to just kind of crack on and rely on yourself. And I think there's an element of that in novel writing as well.
2: So in science, you may have a hypothesis in physics, you know, this, you know, how fast can this let let time go. So you had a you have a something to start with. When you're starting the book, did you have an idea going forward? Did you have a theory, a theory or hypothesis going forward saying, "I got a title, I got an idea, let me just rip with it because I don't know where I'm going"? Kind of like in the science.
3: With my first novel, I I wrote fairly freely. I sort of knew what the beginning was and what the end was, but I was really fuzzy on the middle. Um, that. It hasn't entirely changed with my later novels i uh, I generally do know very clearly what the beginning is. normally, I know the first sentence um and I always know the last scene I can see it quite clearly in my head um but now I'm uh forced by my publisher to to write outlines for them, so you know five to seven pages, so it maps it out a little more carefully, but it's still it's still a bit more amorphous and and I think I can take different paths. Through it and often do. I mean, I I guess the major beats that probably match the outline, but often something quite big might, might be, you know, happening or that that wasn't in the outline. Um, so I've been forced to, um, to be a bit more disciplined about the, the planning process.
4: So what comes first is it character or the story?
3: It's the setting for me. I I feel like, yeah, I need to have a, a setting and a sense of atmosphere. And that needs to be really nailed down. And until I have that, the characters don't appear. It's almost as if they need a landscape to walk around in before they can reveal themselves to me.
2: You have character-driven, you have plot-driven, you have setting-driven. And your settings are like the latest book is in uh, the chalet, and you've been in all these different places. And so it seemed to me that 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 sense of setting, especially when you have a a theme which is close-quarter sort of psychological thriller mystery things, that setting is is critical, and you can stick the characters in there, and the plot will, and other things will come. Am I wrong on that? Am I misreading how you, you're writing?
3: No, I think you're right that the setting is really pivotal, pivotal rather. But um, I do, I do think I write um, character driven stories, so it's really important to me that the um the arc of the characters is authentic and that you don't kind of scream and hurl the book across the room going nobody in their right mind would do that you know (laughs) which i'm sure we've all done on reading certain novels or on watching certain television shows you know um so yeah i i think i write character driven uh mysteries psychological thrillers but the the way in which the process works for me is that I start from a setting and a sense of atmosphere that I really that I find really intriguing that keeps pulling me back to it, and then the characters will kind of grow out of that.
4: In a sense, maybe your setting is a character. Like, you write it like a character?
3: It certainly has been the case for, for this novel, for Bright and Deadly Things, and for, you know, certain of my other novels, you, you would say that. So in Bright and Deadly Things, the chalet itself... Um, where it's said the Chalets in the French Alps, Chalet des Anglais, um, and uh, it, it it very much is a character um, in its own right. And I think you would say the same about um, the manse in my second novel, The Missing Years.
4: So, uh, do you find you you have to get to those to the locations or the places you're writing and the settings? Have you had to visit them? in order to, to write about them?
3: I think I have to have had a visit there. Um, you know, with um, with Bright and Deadly Things, the, the Chalet des Anglais the Chalet des Anglais is actually a real place. Um, and I was lucky enough to be invited there when I was doing my PhD at Oxford. It's a it's a very rustic chalet, no running water, no electricity, which is set in the French Alps and it's owned by three Oxford colleges and they each of those colleges run reading parties during, during each summer, and I was lucky enough to be invited. Um, spent a week there. Nobody died. It was a completely lovely experience. We did a lot of walking. We did a lot of academic reading. Well, I mean, maybe I didn't do as much academic reading as I should have done. Um, I certainly enjoyed the, the local red wine and just had a lovely time, but it had a very specific a- a- atmosphere, a very particular atmosphere at nighttime that, that stuck with me. And so that really was um, what I wanted to capture because I wanted to set a thriller in the world of Oxford Academia, but I didn't want to do something that was you know, just a kind of standard campus thriller. And this suddenly occurred to me as being the perfect way of doing that, of exploring the world of Oxford Academia, but in a slightly different setting. Um, so, yeah, the, that's where the chalet came from for
4: me. So now your main characters... Um, the centre of the, of the attention, so to speak. How do you create your characters, or do you know? Do you have sort of an explanation of how they come about?
3: I don't know that I do. They sort of just kind of present themselves to me. Um, I could do some reverse engineering and, and say a little bit about them. Like, for example, our, the main character in this novel is Dr. Emily Rivers, and she's an Oxford Fellow, and she's working in the area of theoretical physics and I could very intellectually tell you well that makes sense because you know if I'm going to write authentically about you know somebody's work experience um, it would need to be you know an area that I have good knowledge of I, I don't think for example I could write authentically about somebody who is I don't know uh, a fellow in history. I just don't quite know what their life would look like, what their department experiences would look like, whereas I know very much what a theoretical physics department feels and breathes like. Um, so, you know, that is in some ways the intellectual uh, reason for it, but that isn't how it happened. I didn't make those decisions. She just presented to me like that. And she presented to me as, um, you know, her... her. Um, her husband had recently died, and I had to find out about her husband in the same way that the readers find out about her husband, you know, through her memories and her flashbacks. I, you know, that's the way in which he came to me, you know,
4: only through her. How do you experience your characters? Do you see them, hear them, feel them? Like, what, what, what experience is it for you?
3: I definitely hear them in some way, because when, <laughs> when they come to give me um suggestions of actors for the audiobooks i'm i'm quite specific about no that's that's just not right you know or oh yeah that's perfect you know so i i definitely hear them i see them in the sense that i could describe them but i i think i'm more sort of walk inside their shoes so i may be see and feel things the the way that they do
2: and you put your that character your main character into a space with a group of people so how do you uh, deal with group dynamics in those closed space how important is that to you as you're creating that
3: well i think group dynamics are hugely fascinating they're one of the things that i really like exploring in my writing and um it's it's not just the interactions, it's also what happens if you take somebody out of that group and how does that um, cause an imbalance and how does the the group sort of rearrange itself around that missing person. I find all of that really fascinating. Um, So yeah, it was was a real attraction to me that I had a space in which I was able to put um, a group of people and it was important for this that I have characters from all different levels um, within university, all different strata, if you like, of university life, from undergraduates right the way through to, you know, quite senior professors. Partly because that actually mirrors how the real reading parties do work and partly because I was interested in that because, you know, as I started thinking more and more about, um you know this this setup that for, for this book I I was exploring also you know my own experiences at university and I was thinking about the fact that whilst I was there I, and I was at Oxford as an undergraduate as well as as a graduate um I, whilst I was there I was aware that my graduate experience was very different to my undergraduate experience you know you you have different concerns and worries and you're there in the summer when the undergraduates have gone and and it's quite a different place. You you become more of a sort of, you know, nine to five worker because you keep working through the holidays and so forth. Um, But I hadn't really extended my thinking to think about the fact that it's a different place for postgraduates, it's a different place for junior fellows versus very kind of senior professors, that your experience of the community and the place that you're living in is very different depending on on which stage you are um, in your university life. And it was interesting to me to put all those different um, people together in this one confined space and then watch them kind of struggle a bit with the fact that they were kind of in a work environment but kind of not and trying to work out what the real rules are when you, you know, it's like going on a I don't know if you've ever been on a work party trip or you know i remember going on a work skiing trip and just thinking it was terrible because nobody really knew the rules like were you allowed to beat the boss down the mountain or or did you have to hang back what, what was the
4: rules how much do you think you put your how much of yourself do you put into let's say the main character uh, emily rivers how how much do you think of yourself are you are you exp- letting other people see
3: look nobody can write a book that is not in some way um, colored by their own experiences. I mean, it's just not something that's possible to do. Um, but I would say that emily is a is a very, very different character to me. She certainly has a similar background in in terms of her um, academic experience. Um, and I would think that the fact that she's um, recently experienced a loss was probably driven by the fact that my mum died not too long before I started this project so I'm sure that was kind of lingering in me and you know I wanted to do an authentic um expression on, and depiction of grief if you like so there, there's obviously ways in which I bring myself to her or or, or bits of me that she is taken with her um but no she, she is very different I'm um I I'm not as reserved and um I'd like to think I'm as resilient as she as she is, um, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I've never had to experience some of the things that she's had to experience.
4: How do each one of these books, when you finish them, how do you think it changes you?
3: Um it's it's an interesting thing, and it doesn't happen immediately because I think, you know, you finish the first draft and you're aware there's going to be a second draft, and, um, you know, the second draft is where you can put in some real magic and make sure that it becomes really the best thing possible. Um, but then after that, you go into things like, you know, um, there's copy edit, and then there's first pass and second pass, and, you know, by the time you, the the book actually turns up in print, I mean, I don't know about uh, anyone else, but I'm pretty damn sick of the thing. <laughs> I've like read it so many times, and I need a, a period, and, and I usually get it, because it's such a long time between, you know, the last time you read it through and it actually coming out in print, you know, there's such a long lead time these days. Um, I, I need a period, just to kind of uh, get away from it and come back to it. Um and now I'm very enthusiastic about talking about it, and I see different things that I maybe didn't see before.
2: So let me uh, ask you a question during that time frame um, about your support system, your support process, uh, the family. You got. You used to have a job, and then you didn't have a job, and then you uh, work at home, or you, you go out and write, or there's all this support as you're going. How, how does that help you or hinder you? When you're trying to put all this together, what's during that process?
3: Um, You know, before the pandemic, I never wrote at home. I would always go and write somewhere else. Um, And then the pandemic hit, and um, clearly I had to learn to write at home, or otherwise I'd never written another word. Uh, So I I have become much better at at writing at home. Um, And now I'd say I probably write at home 50, 60% of the time but my my support system is kind of an interesting one because my main focus now that i I don't work part time I worked part time um in the city up up until about a year a year and a half ago but now I'm a full time writer and so m- one of the things that's really important for me to do is actually find some adult conversation in a day you know my my husband is traveling with work often my kids um are at boarding school so there are, are swathes of time where they're not actually around so it's important to me to make sure that I meet friends to, to, you know, go and do exercise and and catch up with people and, and so forth. Um, and those, those are kind of like the building blocks I have to have in place to feel like I'm, I'm being healthy and functioning properly. And then, you know, when, when I sit down to write, I often find now, because I've got, as I say, often an empty house that, um, if I'm not careful, I can keep going too long. So I have to, cut myself off. And uh, I try and do any admin or chores I need to do before I sit down to write, because once I do, I'm probably lost in a rabbit hole for a little while, right? So, um, you know, there's something important. It needs to get done first.
2: I got, I got a lot of problems that I got that problem too. <laughs> Give me but, a reason not to be sitting here.
4: But with the um, pandemic, you know, when that's going on and things change and things are really dark, let's say the atmosphere around you and outside of the, wor- the world right it's all kind of uh pretty intense um do you think that seeps into your writing or, or do you have an issue writing or concentrating on 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 what you're trying to write with things like that going on
3: um i can do i what i found with the pandemic was more that i couldn't i couldn't focus on things like reading a book or watching a series on Netflix or anything, I just couldn't really sort of get invested in anything like that. Um, but the writing remained a bit of a refuge, I think. It, it must be the case that what you're experiencing around you does seep in. Um, and certainly I don't think any of us are kind of unscathed by by that experience. But in certain ways, you know, we we... <laughs> as a family, we, we had a kind of nice time, you know, my eldest had just gone to boarding school and suddenly he was back with us. And we were like all four of us together and we happened to have glorious weather. Um, so, you know, and we're lucky enough to have a garden. So it's, it's a time that uh, thankfully the boys look back on with a certain amount of fondness. So we, we are fortunate in that it wasn't, um, wasn't something that, you know, we, we felt was, Dark, dark, dark. Every single day. Although, obviously, you know, we you couldn't escape the fact that it was a really tough time for an awful lot of people, and that you know, almost all of us have you know suffered some loss in, in that scenario, in that situation.
2: Yeah. We and, and on top of a global pandemic and the stress, the mental stress you're talking about, I I, I think most of us have the advantages and disadvantages of our lives as we as we're trying to write. Uh, you've had a lot of advantage, a lot of hard work. And you're a scientist. That's your, that's your bread and that's where you come from. That's the core of your being. And that's a certain thought process. Writing and being creative, is that a different thought process? Is there, was there, was there advantages or different disadvantages as being coming from a scientific discipline to a writing creative discipline?
3: They are different in certain ways. Um, I think. I think that the scientific um, discipline helps with the with the writing, with you know, look when you're when you're working on something in, in science, you're kind of holding the whole problem in your head and looking at it from different angles. And I think when you're building a universe for um for for a novel, you're holding that universe and all those characters and in your head in, in a very similar way. Um, but really where it comes in more, I think, is just, you know, I, I'm quite disciplined and a lot of that comes from, you know, the, the kind of fairly rigorous academic background. And then going on into, you know, working in the financial industry where um, you had to meet deadlines, you had to be professional, you know, you, everything had to be dotted the I's and crossing, crossing the T's and um, that work ethos, I suppose, translates across into, you know, the, the way I've approached my writing as well. But I mean, yeah, I, I think that they are different sides of me, but I don't have a problem with being lots of different things. You know, I'm, I'm, a. I'm a mother, I'm an athlete, um, I'm a writer, sometimes I'm a financial consultant. I want to be lots of different things. I don't see why I have to just be one.
4: Do you have a subtext or some sort of a a meaning or something underneath your story? Or perhaps you've written it into the, the setting in itself. Is there something that you want people to get out of the book besides the entertainment?
3: I think that the wonderful things about writing psychological thrillers is that they... Provide a really great structure, um, you know, almost like a scaffolding that you can have in place that helps the story hang together, that helps you move on at pace and so forth, but then allows you to, to just hang on to that, to add on to that structure, anything that you want to investigate. And there's always things I want to investigate. You know, it's, it's, it's around, you know, human connections and, um, you know, how, how you, people treat each other within a group, how they, how they might manage familiarity and in, you know, in bright and deadly things, there's certainly an element of, um, you know, how you, how you manage grief, um, and how you move on, um, and, and make your life meaningful beyond, beyond a loss like that. Um, there's, uh, there, there's a strong element of, Being true to yourself and thinking very hard about your own actions and what you you might be proud or less proud of Um, throughout the novel. There's people who, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but there's people who are maybe not so proud of what they've done and they have to live with that. So... Yeah, I think there there's always in my novels something more because they're character-driven, and, you know, um, characters are messy and complex and have, you know, interesting things that we can learn from them.
2: Ah, uh, but Lexi, you, you said scaffolding. Tell me about your supernatural vibes and themes that I kind of sense uh, as a symbolism underneath your writing. Is, is that on purpose or does that just develop as you're putting these people and places together?
3: It always just comes, you know, Um, I I don't know exactly where from, maybe it comes from having had a heady mix of reading in my teenage years where I was like, oh, I loved fantasy, but I loved mysteries and, you know, I read really widely across the spectrum, but, you know, fantasy and and mysteries were were my bread and butter. So um, I guess there's an element where it just kind of sneaks in. But in In this particular one, I mean, there's uh there's a, a theme, I guess, related to um to the beat of time, which uh, Emily is very aware that her grief is almost like robbing her of time. She's not living her life, and who knows how long we all have on this planet, but she's not living it to the full. Um, and um and that sort of that 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 concern about time manifested itself in, you know, a, a, an actual clock within the chalet. Um, but it, you know, it built out its part, shall we say, <laughs> and that wasn't wasn't in the outline. You know, that's something that grew. So when you, when you're
4: getting into the head of a uh, the person that's let's say the evil character or the bad person, or the one that does the awful thing, let's say that that's usually setting behind the missing bodies or the the murder and stuff like that. How do you how do you get into that mindset to be able to write that character? Um, where it's believable.
3: Well, you see, I like all my characters, even the ones who do things that um, you, you really hope you wouldn't in that situation. And I think to make them authentic, you have to understand them. So the reader has to understand how they got there. And, you know, as I say, hopefully they wouldn't make the same choices themselves, but they can see how somebody might make those choices. Um, and that... and. I think that's maybe a reflection of my view on the world. I don't think anyone is entirely evil. I don't think anyone is entirely good either. I think we're all kind of a a mix of, um, you know, better angels and, and, and demons. And we, we try to do the right thing and hopefully we, we do do the right thing more often than not. But, you know, we all have the capacity to do some really, really dreadful things. And we all have the capacity to do some wonderful things. And, the interesting thing is, you know, how these people react to the circumstances that they're put in, and what their choices are in those specific situations. Okay. Well, you mentioned readers.
2: How do you, as you're writing, want to interact with your, your readers? How do you want? What are you thinking about your readers as you're writing? If you do.
3: Um, when I am thinking about my readers, which is not mostly, I'm writing. The, I'm just trying to, you know get down what is going through my head but sometimes I think okay I'm bored by this so my reader's going to be bored by this and then I have to go back and look at what I'm doing and say like and sometimes you just you come back to it and you go I actually don't even need that section I can jump to here and explain it in a different way and you know if, it, if I'm getting bogged down in some kind of exposition or some kind of transition from one scene to another scene yeah then then if it comes into my head that the reader will be bored, that's a sign to me that I need to, you know, look at that again Um, I mean, obviously you hope that your readers are going to absolutely love everything you write, but I can't I don't think I can keep that in my head while I'm writing, because I feel like someone was looking on my shoulder the whole time, and that would be
4: deeply uncomfortable. How do you Interact with your readers now you talk about this. Do you have social media set up? Do You have a website where do people go to find you?
3: Yeah, I have a website um, Lexi and I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook on um, uh, Lexi Elliot writes is the handle Um, and I'm on Twitter, but I'm not a great tweeter
2: I noticed. I followed you today. You're not. You're not a lot of, a lot of things out there. Work harder on that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think you know Instagram feels more natural to me. Look, I'm I'm not a Generation Z. Are we on Z? Z? What are, What are we on these days? So, um, I'm There's a name alphas. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm clearly. I. I, I well, I, you know, I was a teenager in the in the 80s, the 90s. So, um, social media is not something that I feel comfortable with um clearly it's something that i need to engage with i mean i love talking to people uh, live about books i love um i love having any engagement emails whatever with readers but i just find social media to be something that i'm not natural at I'd much rather be doing this right i we're having a conversation this this feels like something i can i can manage but uh social media i i have to yeah, I have to work quite hard to uh, make sure I remember to do stuff
0: on social media. <laughs> I'm
2: following you now. I'm watching you. <laughs> <laughs> Look out. Uh, let me ask you one question because you said something there that, that sparked another thought. My page of notes going on here. Um, do you let people read any of your things while you're writing it? Do you read it to your husband? Or you're acting out with your kids or say, hey, hey, friend from college, what do you think of this passage? Or is it just, hey, I'm, writing my, I'm reading my book. I'm in a secret zone you know, stay away from me.
3: Yeah, I, I don't have anyone who reads apart a from my agent before it goes to the publisher, but my agent is a really great first reader, um, and she has really great comments. So um, that's the process. And she sometimes gets it, you know, half done. And well, to be honest, I, I usually go through a... a period of anxiety and neurosis about 20,000 words and so she'll read and say no 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 keep going you're doing fine but that's usually the point at which I want to like throw my hands up in the air and just throw the laptop in the lake or something but um, yeah I I, nobody else my husband look my husband's a lawyer he reads for a living the last thing he wants to do is come home and you know get through my stuff he reads the books when they are books on a shelf Um, uh, but yeah um, I really am not someone who has a, a a big stable of readers, and I I think that I, I that that now I would feel uncomfortable with that because I've never done it. I I don't know uh, what other people's processes are, but uh, it it doesn't seem to be something that I I feel an urge to do. What do
4: you think? That'll affect you when you get reviews and stuff like do you do you follow up what people say about your books online you know speaking of all those subjects um, do, do you take reviews seriously
3: I try really hard not to um, <laughs> I just try not to go down that rabbit hole but um, look I mean uh, there's been a there's been some really lovely reviews and I know because my agent has said yeah you can read this one it's safe. <laughs> Um I and I've been really fortunate that the reviews for this have, have been really really lovely and but but on the whole I I kind of think well the book is the book um and I really hope people people do enjoy it but um there's not much I can do about it now right <laughs> so um and and I think that the I in when the first novel was published the French girl I remember um you know there was this one review that was literally glowing apart from a single sentence. So you're talking about you know half of a percent of the entire review said something that wasn't glowing, and I, I fixated on that, and I and it was a real lesson to me that just you know try and stay away from these as much as you can because you know uh, I don't think it's good for your mental health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: well you're not and you're not going to win because the more popular you get, you get, and the more you get out there, and the more reviews you get, you've you've got to get. The negative ones. It's just it, it's better just to look at the overall picture. That's what I find. I look at the, you look at um, a page and you kind of go, okay, nine hundred reviews, and you're a four star. Yeah. Take yeah, that. And run.
3: I, I mean, look, I, I I do remember actually on my second novel there was one particularly interesting review that somebody drew my attention to. It was it was just a comment on Amazon really rather than a, a review, and it, um and the the reviewer said um. Well, for the first 100 pages, I thought it was littered with, with spelling mistakes, and then I realized there was some Scottish dialect in there. And I was like, ah, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> Dialects <laughs> are hard. Yeah, I had a review once where someone said, yeah, Ralph, I hated that character. And then when they went on fishing trips, like, I don't have any Ralphs in my book. There's no fishing trips. But thank you for giving me the one-star yeah. review, the sock puppet killing me off. But I want to ask, one. I always kind of ask this question, because this is going through my mind as I'm writing right now, trying to get out of espionage stuff, is do you want to get out a genre? Do you want to write the great, the great Scottish novel or whatever? I would say great American novel, but that's not going to work. But do you want to move on from psychological thrillers?
3: Um, look, I don't know that move on is the right word, because I would like to um, continue to do psychological thrillers, but I do think that I would like to spread my wings as well. I, I don't know about you guys, but um, certainly I wrote a novel, the, the French Girl, and then my publishing house told me that was a psychological thriller. But I didn't sit there going, I'm writing a psychological thriller. I just wrote a tale, and they told me what genre it went into and they, that they would like more of those, please. But, you know, if, you, if you've if you read in a lot of different genres, I think your, your mind naturally creates stories in a lot of different genres. And, um, yeah, I could see myself writing across different genres for sure and and in fact i've been doing a little bit of something on the side in, in the fancy genre that you know may never see the light of day but it's been quite a good i hesitate to say palette cleanser but i mean it, it has been quite a good palette cleanser
4: so your structure are you able to just turn it on then can you just like you know there's nobody around so you can just sit down and and write you know can you can you plan it that precisely or do you have to be in a certain mood
3: Oh definitely not a certain mood I I'm not really a, a a big believer in that oh the muse takes you I think it's it's basically about hard work and making sure that you're sitting down and putting the hours in you know I'm like nobody goes to the office for their job and says oh you know what I don't really feel like doing these spreadsheets today you know the, the mood hasn't taken me and and I think writing is you know it, it's a profession it's a job you should treat it professionally and, and sit down and do it and you know sometimes you'll write absolute rubbish for a bit and and then you'll you'll find your your pace and there's certainly times where I've had to work really hard and it's usually at the beginning of a project I work really hard with them word targets for the day because at the beginning of a project you are structuring as well as writing and it can be really really slow and I need that as a sort of yes you are making progress keep going keep going Whereas at the end, I like, you know, don't even pay attention because you're blasting through any
4: target that you would put down. I write nothing but nonfiction myself, but, you know, Joe and yourself, you're, you're writing um, out of your imagination completely as well, right? So that's a, it's a different sort of um, way of writing, that's all.
3: Yeah, I, I suppose the the time that I'm less able to write is when I... I haven't done enough exercise um so that i find really really helps um to keep me in a kind of zone where i can yes okay i can sit down and write now um but i tend to get a bit kind of scratchy and mutinous if i haven't done enough exercise <laughs> and so so really that's a good solution to make me uh uh sit down and, and get on with it properly is just go for a run first i
2: had that same feeling with my reading the refrigerator and the Give me chocolate out of the pantry. I,
4: I need some chocolate.
2: Give me some chocolate. I need the, I need the muse. Yeah, give me some Oreos.
4: <laughs> if someone brand new was was out there and looking to write, um, Joe was ready to take notes. So, yeah. <laughs> how, what would you suggest for someone who wants you know who wants to become a writer and and get their books published and get an agent and all that? What do you think the um, the one thing they should do is?
3: So it's a question that I do get asked quite often, and um, I think the most important thing, if you really want to make a career out of it, you know, you want to have it be your profession, is to be professional about it. And when you're trying to write and, you know, inevitably you have other things going on in your life, I think it's very important to ring-fence the time that you're going to devote to writing. So, you know, you wouldn't go into your job and then just, you know, get up and go and have a coffee with somebody. Yeah, that, Those are your working hours. You you have to sit and do your job, you know, and it's the same with the writing. If that's the time you've written place for writing, you have to sit and do your writing and not let anything else interfere with that because otherwise you just won't get to the end of a novel, right? And you, you've, you've got to finish something before you've got any chance of moving forward and getting an agent and getting a publishing contract and so forth. So you just have to start off with protecting that writing time, which can be very hard because, you know, we all have lives and families and, you know, things going on. So um, that is, I would say, the first step.
4: What's your favorite thing about writing?
3: My favorite thing is when I am working on a manuscript and something happens that was entirely unplanned, whether it's, you know, the, the story as a whole moves in a different direction or... A character does something that that I hadn't envisaged, and I just think that that's—it's kind of like a little bit of magic, right? It's when the 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 project is is breathing and and changing organically and just has a life of its own, and and I don't know that I could ever explain how that happens, but you know, and I I I think for people who maybe aren't writers, they will not understand how you can be surprised by something that's coming from you, but. But I am, and I love it. And so it's, you know, um, as we were talking about the slightly supernatural aspects, whenever that has come in, it's been like, oh, okay. And it's slightly scary, too, because you're like, "Uh, do I run with this? And, um, yeah, I think you always run with it, and you just kind of have to have faith that it's going to turn out all right.
4: (laughs) Well, that's those voices you hear, too, right? Do you hear them when you're driving, or do you wake up at night with a shovel in your hand or anything?
3: (laughs) I wake up at night with a shovel in my hand. Goodness, you, you'll be terrifying, my husband. Um, <laughs> yeah, the plot of
4: yes. the next book is that the theoretical yeah. physicist kills the lawyer husband. He isn't yeah. ready yet until he reads the book. Is <laughs> the husband really there? Like, we need to yeah. see. <laughs> <proof>.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Do I hear? Um, I, I definitely have lines of dialogue that will come into my head. And, you know, I try and scribble them down if I think they're worthy of, you know, Trotting out at some later point, so yeah, um, and and I have um, you know different stories or you know, silly things. Sometimes you know you just hear a noise, and, you're like, oh, and then something sparks, and you're like, okay, well maybe that could be a project one day. So yeah, I have a I have a little file of um, complete nonsense that will probably get nowhere, but you know maybe some of them will be the seed that creates whatever you know. Book number 56789, whatever it is.
2: Yeah, I have the idea file in my phone. Something comes to me. I want the notes right away. Idea, blah, 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 blah. So it's there somewhere. I'm not going to forget it, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, I should do that. I should put it on the phone. That's a good idea.
4: Yeah, yeah I'm here for yeah. you. Lots of insanity.
2: Ever you had that for free.
4: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, um, really appreciate you being on the show. And, uh, of course, now your your newest book is called Bright and Deadly Things. And uh, our guest, Lexi Elliott. Thank you for being here.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,
0: or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over
1: for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well.
4: Yeah. Good night.